The scriptures this morning, scripture text is going to be 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. And in fact, it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the word of God. You can be seated. And while you're being seated, will you please bow with me while we ask God's blessing on our time of the preaching of the word. Father, I pray that you would please give me grace to preach the truth rightly, to, treat, to preach it, of course, both lovingly and boldly, but most importantly, Lord, accurately, not mixing any human philosophy or the traditions of man with it at all. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would please use his word, taking it into our hearts. Lord, helping each one of us. We're, in all, we're all in very different places, either in our walk, or maybe even when it comes to salvation. Lord, there may be some here that don't know you, so I pray that you would be pleased to use this text this morning to save sinners and to build up the saints. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Lord is risen. He's risen indeed. And we love this day, don't we? And it's not the only day that we celebrate the resurrection, is it? Now, I want to start off by saying something. You know, Christianity, even its principles, if not believed, if just lived... We know that if you just live out just the principles of the Christian faith, it does lead to a life that's going to be pretty good. There are just built into these principles of not lying, not stealing, not committing adultery, all these things that are going to lead to a life that is a pretty good life, right? But it's interesting that Paul says at the end of this text, isn't it, isn't it interesting that he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. And we're going to see why he says that, because that's really the punch, really the thrust of the whole paragraph. But there's so much more here, which we're going to talk about. You know, our culture is kind of weird in that our culture longs for something genuine, something real. They want something genuine and something real. When they, when they see someone who's genuine, some people say, you know, I like him because he's just a genuine guy. He's not trying to be something that he's not. They're attracted to that. They want something real and tangible. And they want to know even about a religion that is real and tangible. They do. But at the same time, non-Christians also live lives of chasing all the pleasure they can get, 
and encouraging others. Just get any pleasure that is good for you. It doesn't matter. Just This is all that there is to life, so just get it all. So there's this weird dichotomy in our culture that says, I want something real and tangible, but I also just want to goof off and just get all these pleasures and just live it up. Both are being pumped out to them, and they both kind of think they can... They think both can be had, these beliefs that contradict each other. And having beliefs that contradict each other are not new. Even in the church of Corinth, we see here that some were saying that there's no resurrection from the dead. And Paul goes on to say, well, that can't be. So even as Christians, we can sometimes get tripped up into believing things that contradict the other. The church in Corinth is just unfortunately this collection of people that make a lot of bad choices. And so if you ever need encouragement about how your church is doing, read 1 Corinthians. Paul, in setting up his argument here for why they can't believe what they believe here about the resurrection, uses three if-then statements. And he makes a middle point that's very strong. And he concludes with three if-then statements. But really, it's about, well, what if there is no resurrection of the dead? Which is why I've titled the message this, this morning, What if there is no resurrection of the dead? What if that were true? What if it was true that there's no resurrection of the dead? We're going to see what that means as we go through this. But let's start off with the first if-then statement. Some of the thens are implied, by the way. Because these, church, these people in the church of Corinth, some of them were influenced by some of the pagan religions around them that had views about the physical body. There's a view in that, a view in that day called Gnosticism that believed that everything physical is inherently evil and everything spirit is inherently good. And so some of them were believing this and they had wrong views about the body. And so they thought, well, if the the body's raised, that's going to be a bad thing. So really there can't be a resurrection because if there's a resurrection, that would be bad because the physical is inherently evil. And then some of them were influenced by a group of Jews. You've heard of them called the Sadducees. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And one time, even Paul, um, to sort of get out of something, he knew he was in a group of mixed bunch. There were Pharisees and Sadducees, and they were both hating him. And so he actually capitalized on the fact that some of them were Sadducees, and he brought up something about the resurrection. And so they started fighting with each other and forgot about him. And so he knows that there's still people that are influenced by this teaching in this day. So that's why he brings up here in verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, then, it's implied, then how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? It doesn't make sense, he's saying. You can't say, hey, we believe Jesus is raised from the dead, but there's no resurrection of the dead. And then he goes on, he's building his case, look at this, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He's just building his point. That's the second if then. Building it even further. Look at this. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching 
is in vain, and your faith is in vain. He's just building the point here. Martin Luther said, This is the chief article of Christian doctrine. No one who claims to be a Christian can deny the resurrection. And he's right. That's why, around this time of year, it seems articles come out, documentaries come out, attacking the resurrection. Because it is true. It is true. That is really the linchpin of our faith. If there's no resurrection, exactly what Paul says is true. We're done for. Our faith is in vain. We have no hope. It's true. That's why the resurrection is so attacked. And that's the point he's trying to make right here. If Christ has not been raised, here's the first implication of that. First negative implication of Christ not being raised. Our preaching is in vain. You all sitting here listening to me are wasting your time. Total waste. Especially those of you who are faithful to come every single Sunday. Think of all the hours you've wasted. You could have been doing something so much better, so much more fun, so much more beneficial for this life if there's no resurrection. This makes no sense. Why would you come listen to some guy talk about a very old book for 35 to 45 minutes every Sunday? Why would you do that? He says, our preaching is in vain. And if you happen to believe anything that I'm saying, put faith in it. He says, your faith is in vain. What does that mean in vain? Meaningless, useless, I mean, useless and worthless. Meaningless, useless, worthless. It has no worth, no use, no meaning if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. Not only that, here's the third negative implication that it means. Preaching, number one, is in vain. Faith is in vain. Also, the third implication We're even found to be misrepresenting God. And let me tell you, as a preacher, as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel, that is one of my biggest fears. Since teaching you all about the living God is my primary responsibility, do you know what that means? It's also my greatest fear that I do it wrongly. Because since it's my greatest responsibility, it's one of the main things I'm going to have to answer to before God on the last day about whether or not I did it well. So almost every time I'm standing there, and I know it's the third song, and Seth is about to call me up to read the scriptures, I stand there and I take a deep breath because I know I'm entering into a very serious Roll once again. So misrepresenting God, when Paul writes that, that would have had weight to him. He would have felt, this is a serious crime on my part if I do this. I'm misrepresenting God. Because guess what? If I misrepresent God to you all, then I've got 50 people who are now believing something wrong about God It's my fault. And then what if you tell that to someone else? And they tell it to someone else. Now we've got hundreds, maybe even thousands, believing something wrong about the Lord God. 
and it's Cohen Ezel's fault. So he's saying, listen, if this belief that you're holding, if it's true, my preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, and I'm just a liar. I'm totally wrong. All of us are, actually. He says, our preaching is in vain. All the apostles, any elder that stands up and preaches, because we testified about God that he raised Christ. If there's a minister preaching something other than that the Father raised Jesus from the dead, if there's anyone saying anything about God that's contrary to the fact that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and faith in him is the only way we're forgiven of our sins, he's a false prophet. I'll go on record in saying that. He's a false prophet, and he's telling you a lie that's influenced by the evil one. Because the evil one doesn't care what you believe. He doesn't care what you're into, just as long as it's not that we serve a risen Savior who took the punishment for sinners and rose again on the third day. And he says, hey, but if God didn't do that, you know, then Christ... He didn't, he didn't raise him if it's true that the dead are not raised. And then the third, I mean, the, uh, the other three if-then statements come into play here. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. You see, if the true, real, historical foundation of the resurrection isn't there then none of this has any value at all. None of it. Faith is useless. Because to deny the resurrection would be to destroy the gospel. And he's building up to something here. Like I told you at the end, where I'm going to spend most of my time, you're thinking, wow, Cohen's running through these verses a lot quicker than he normally does. Yes, because I really believe that the thrust is here at the end. But look at verse 17, because it's very important as well. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And then he adds to it. He's already said something like this. Your faith is in vain. He's already made that point, but he adds to it now. Because if your faith is futile, if your faith is in vain, if it's meaningless, if it's useless, if it's worthless, then this is true as well, and this is a big, big deal because this is what either sends you to hell or keeps you out of heaven, which are one and the same. You're still in your sins. See, that's why we have faith in Jesus. Not just for those principles that I told you earlier that do make for a good life. Let's just be honest. They do. Even if a non-Christian follows just the principles of Christianity, he, she is going to have a decent life, for the most part, more than likely. But he'll still have his sins. See, that's why we need Jesus. And that's why we call him a savior. And that's why we talk about getting Saved. R.C. Sproul has a book called Saved from What? Because some people can't answer that question. Are you saved? Oh, yeah. Saved from what? Um, uh, meaninglessness? Um, hopelessness? Uh, I don't, uh, I mean, uh, my drug addiction. Uh, all, yes, all those things, of course. 
But it's your sin that's the problem. It's your sin that's keeping you away from God. You know this. This is what the Bible teaches. That's your biggest problem. When we were missionaries, there was this one man who would always come up and ask us for money. Always come up and ask us for money. And he always spent his money in ways he shouldn't. Okay? One of those guys who does that consistently. And did we help him a few times? Absolutely. But then we learned the third, fourth, fifth time he kept coming back to us for money. We said, oh, now I understand. Now I, now I see what's going on here. And so Clifford would always ask me for money. And I would tell him, Clifford, your biggest problem is not that you don't have money. Your biggest problem is that you've not been forgiven of your sins. You need to come to know the Lord God. To which he would respond with many expletives and walk away in a huff and then next week hey pastor cohen sob story can i have some money clifford your biggest problem is not that you don't have money your biggest problem is that you've not been forgiven of your sin expletives and just rinse and repeat for about four years clifford pray for clifford he can be saved as well Because Jesus is alive, and Jesus took the punishment for sinners when he died on the cross, shedding his blood. He took the wrath of God upon himself. See, the Bible says God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's why he says, if you have faith in in Jesus, you can forget about that sin stuff because they're not forgiven. Because he's the one who took the punishment for sinners. He's the one that God poured his wrath out upon as a sinless sacrifice. You see, why the cross works, why Jesus Christ's work works, is because he was the great law keeper. He's the only man who's ever kept the law of God perfectly, never once sinned. And we are law breakers. That's why it works with Jesus. Because the law for us is a roadblock. It wasn't for Jesus. He was the better Moses. He was the better Adam. He fulfilled everything where they failed. He fulfilled. And so when our faith is in him, guess what? Our sins are forgiven because God counts what he did on the cross to our account. And righteousness is put into our account and our sin debt was placed on Christ. And that all happens by faith. That's why he says, you're still in your sins if Jesus is dead. Because you don't serve a risen Savior who's in the world today. Who walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. Like the old hymn says, no. We're believing in a dead Savior. And a dead Savior can't save. And you know why? Because he's dead. And so, yes, everything hangs on the resurrection. And you're still in your sins if there's no resurrection. And you're still in in your sins sitting here now, though Jesus is alive, if you've not yet put your faith and trust in him, repenting of your sins. You're still in your sins too. And I'm telling you that as someone who cares for you. I'm telling you that as someone who's been delivered from his sins. Not as someone who's standing over you. As someone who's trying to help you. And he says this too. Here's another consequence if you hold on to this view that there's no resurrection. 
He says in verse 18, all those who've fallen asleep in Christ, fallen asleep is a biblical phrase meaning died. We say things like passed away. And this time they would say fallen asleep. Those who've fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. They're also dead. They're just done for. They're just annihilated. That's a belief we have in our day that there's no heaven or hell. You're just annihilated when you die. You're just, you just cease to exist. So grab all the gusto you can now. But then here's the kicker. And here's where we're going to spend some time because I don't think we've thought deeply enough about this. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why, Paul? Why? I mean, Christianity makes a pretty good life. It does. Decent family, more than likely. Probably saving your money because you're not wasting it on alcohol, drugs, and other vices. You're not stealing from your boss. You're not lying about your taxes. So why? Why are we of all men must be pitied? Why can somebody look at me and say, what a pitiable fool? Why? Well, I'll tell you why. If your Christianity is real and biblical, it will have an element to it that looks totally foolish to the world. I'll say that again. If your Christianity is real and biblical, it'll have an element to it that looks totally foolish to the world. How can someone pity you if it doesn't? How can someone pity you if your life doesn't look so different from what the world says you should be living your life for? How can they look at you and say, that poor fool, so misguided, such a dummy, bless his heart. See, no one's going to think you're a pitiable fool for not lying, not stealing, not cussing, and not committing adultery. No one's going to look at you and say, poor fool. No. If that's all your Christianity means to you and to others around you is that you simply don't do bad things, then that's not Christianity according to the New Testament. Is that part of Christianity? 100%. Because it was our sins that put Jesus on the cross. On the cross. So then what is it? What else is it? Well, think about this. When Jesus called his disciples to follow him, and by the way, being a Christian means to be a Christ follower. That's what the word Christian means, Christ follower. So you can't say I'm a Christian if you're not following Christ. So when Jesus called his disciples to follow him, he didn't simply lead them in lives where they just avoided doing bad things, did they? When you read the New Testament Gospels, Jesus says to them, follow me. It wasn't just this long path of, and this is, this is when we're going to not do this bad thing. And this is when we're going to not do this bad thing. And this is how to not do this bad thing. The end. It's just all about not doing bad things. But a lot of people kind of equate Christianity with that. Well, if I'm going to be a Christian, I can't drink, I can't smoke, I can't cuss, I can't, no, don't, 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 don't. That's what makes us Christians. We don't dance, we don't chew, and we don't go out with girls that do, right? No, it's not all about what we don't do. 
Jesus leads us to live lives that are very countercultural, very sacrificial, and very illogical to the unsaved mind. He does. If your Christianity is not countercultural, if your Christianity is not sacrificial, if your Christianity isn't illogical to the unsaved mind, then it's actually not in the New Testament Christianity, and it makes more sense of what Paul's saying here, doesn't it? Listen, I mean, just like for example, you want to be blessed by God and have abundance? Well, according to Scripture, give away 10% of what you earn to the ministry and be very generous with the rest. The world doesn't think that. You want to be blessed and have more? Well, then get more and keep it and step on people to get more. And you're telling me that in order to be blessed and have an abundant life that I need to give 10% to a ministry and want the other 90% like be generous and be willing to be generous with that? That makes no sense. You are some kind of idiot. That's what your friends will say. You want to be a great leader? Be a servant. Excuse me? You want to be a great leader? Be a servant. There was a gentleman who uh, came to visit our church, and he was getting involved here, and he kept saying, in real life, he's got a very high um, kind of coveted position in life, okay? He's got a kind of an important job in society, okay? You would look at his job and say, wow, all right? He was visiting our church, and he had been here for a little while, and he said, you know, I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to serve. And I said, well, that's great. I'm glad you are. And I just kind of let that run. Then he said it again a few weeks later, you know, I'm ready to serve. And I said, well, that's wonderful. Since it was the second time, I thought, well, let me get him, give him some examples. At that time, we needed another group of people to help clean bathrooms every other week because one family was cleaning them one week. We need another family to clean the next week. So I said, that's awesome. We actually need somebody to clean the bathrooms every other week. I got nothing back. Third time, he said to me, I'm ready to serve. So I said again, that's great. We actually need somebody to help clean the bathrooms. And he didn't stay much longer after that. In his mind, because in the world, he had a high position. He had a high-paying position. People called him a, a certain title that's coveted in this culture. But he didn't want to clean the toilets. And so what I'm saying is, the Bible says, Jesus says, you want to be a great leader? Be a servant. What did Jesus do to the apostles? Wash their feet. That's why Peter even said, no, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. No, that's, you're not going to stoop that low. That's, you're not, no, I'm, I won't let you. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. That's when Peter said, oh, well then, don't just wash my feet. Wash my head and my hands too. <laughs> if, if, if washing my feet has, connects me to you, then just wash everything. You want to figure out how to fix your problems? According to Scripture, that means spend 
time sitting in a quiet place speaking to your heavenly father that you can't see. The world says, you want to fix your problems? Do, 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 do. Get busy doing this. Get busy. Work, work, work. Be better. Figure this out. Get this. Organize this. Do, go, do, go. Bible says, sit quietly first and pray to someone you can't even see. You want guidance through all these crazy modern issues of our American culture? You want guidance for that? Modern issues in our American culture? Here's what we do. We read a really ancient Jewish book called the Bible. That's what we do. See, this is just so strange. You want to be blessed? Give away your money. You want to be a leader? Be a servant. You want to get things done? Then start off with prayer. Sitting there, doing nothing. You want guidance on how to figure out all this stuff that seems so... How do we navigate this and that? Read a 4,000-old book. 4,000-year-old book written by Jews a long time ago. See, this makes no sense to the world. Does it? And that's what I'm saying. If people aren't looking at you, if, if the unsaved world's not looking at you and saying, yeah, something's, I mean, yeah, he's nice, she's nice, really sweet, really kind, but, I mean, after all, they, he believes in a talking snake, after all, I mean, come on. And then once they read the rest of the Old Testament, they're going to also realize we also believe in a talking donkey. Do you want to know how foolish Paul looked to the world? Look at 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28. It'll be on the screen behind me as well if you don't have your Bible. There is one in the pew pocket in front of you though. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28. And honestly, buckle up if you haven't read this yet. Paul's telling everything that's happened to him since he's become an apostle preaching the gospel. Listen to this. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That means 40 lashes minus one. There was a punishment that was so severe, it was said that if you hit someone with these lashes 40 times, it just might kill him. So in order to get him as close to death as possible without killing him, do it 39 times. We don't want to kill him but get him real close. And he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Just think about that. Just one, two, three, four. And you still got 35 more. And that happened to him five different times. Have you ever thought about what the Apostle Paul's back looked like? Just one big scar. It would have had to have. You can't get this five times without your scar just looking like a mangled mess. 
verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. They're these slightly, slightly flexible rods that the um, Romans would use. They would sometimes tie some of them together and beat you with those rods. Once I was stoned, this actually is recorded in the book of Acts. It happened at Lystra, if I'm not mistaken. And he was stoned so badly with stones that they thought he was dead. They did it outside the city. His friends came around him, and they thought, he's, he's dead. And then as you recall, he gets back up and walks right back into the city where they stoned him and keeps preaching. Either something's really wrong with Paul or something's really right with Paul. He's got a Christianity. He's got a belief that seems to me that he believes in the resurrected body. What else? Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On the Mediterranean Sea and also in the Sea of Galilee, these storms can come up on you very quickly, is what I'm told. Never been sailing there. Three different times he shipwrecked. Now you would think after the first one, he might say, you know, I think I'm going to stick to land this time. I think I'm just going to get there by land. Or, you know, Cyprus, which is an island. You know, I think I'll encourage the other brothers to go there. I don't do so well with boats. He kept getting back on the boat. Why? Because he believed he had a message that was important and needed to go out to every sinner. And shipwrecked three times. One of those was so bad, he spent a night and a day adrift in the open sea, just clinging on to wreckage, hoping to get rescued. A night and a day in the open sea, just floating. Verse 26, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. That hurts too. That hurts badly when you have someone you walk aside walk alongside of for years and years, and then all of a sudden they say, forget that Jesus stuff. You're an idiot, and I'm out of here. That hurts badly. It's happened to me. I still, my heart still breaks for my friend who turned his back on all this. Verse 27, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So his heart, on top of all this, he's thinking, and all the churches that I'm helping to start, and all the troubles that they're having, and all the attacks that they're under, I'm trying to help all of them out, writing letters to them, praying for them, on top of all this, going without food, going without sleep, Philippians 3.10 says this, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So it makes even more sense now when Paul says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, I'm to be pitied above all men. Why, Paul? Well, look at my back. That's why. 
I'm a pitiable fool. Look at these scars. Look at this scar on my head. That's where a stone hit me. Why are you so thin? I don't get a lot of food. Sometimes I go without it because I'm traveling to this church and traveling to that one. Why? Why don't you have food? Well, someone stole it from me on this passage through this mountain once. That dangerous passage? Yes. Why'd you go there? Because there's brothers there that need to hear the truth. Why are you doing this? Why? Why'd you do this, Paul? Why not? I'm not living for this life. There's a resurrection. I don't care about this body. It's a tent. It's disposable. But the body that I will have one day, the body that I will have, I will rise to the likeness of Jesus' glorified body. When he comes in the air, our bodies, our bodies shall be transformed into the likeness of his glorious body, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. If your Christianity doesn't look foolish, if your Christianity doesn't have something about it that's counter-cultural, and looks extremely illogical to your unsaved friends, then your Christianity needs a check, okay? It needs to be made more like the Christianity that Christ called his disciples to. We can all grow. We can all grow. Cohen Ezel needs to grow too. What I'm telling you is this, and what I'm encouraging you is this. You've heard this statement. You've heard this, I'm sure. If not, Listen up, it's pretty good. Not because I came up with it, because I didn't. I'm borrowing it. If Christianity became illegal, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If Christianity became illegal, would there be enough evidence to convict you of the crime? That's a great question we need to ask ourselves. Or else we don't have the faith of verse 19 in our text here. If in Christ only we have hope, and if if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If your beliefs aren't affecting your life enough so that you make sacrifices and choices that look very illogical to the unsaved mind, your Christianity is not Christ-like enough. And that's just the truth. And this is a good word for all of us. We don't live for this life. You're being told to, aren't you? You're being told to stay looking young, stay very thin, go on these vacations, just focus on now. But you know also that this isn't it. Aren't you glad this isn't it? (laughs) I don't want this to be it. The older I get, now, I'm only 44, but the older I get and the more funerals I go to, doing a funeral Tuesday, the more I realize, yeah, I'm glad, I, I'm glad I have Jesus because I'm probably about halfway through my years. And though this is great and I love my family, I, I mean, I've had a, a lot of great things in life, but if this is all there is, oh, gosh. I want my money back. Live for the next life and live as a fool because if there is no resurrection, 
eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if there is, how does your Christianity need to mimic Christ's life and Paul's life more? Father, I pray that you would please be helping us to live as if there truly is a resurrection and not be pulled into the philosophies of the world that tell us to live as if there's no resurrection. Because if there is no resurrection, those of us who are living for you are to be pitied above all men. So Lord, please help us to appear more and more to this lost world as pitiable fools. Because Lord, you said in your word that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. This message of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who believe it, it is light and it is life. We love you. Help us to be more like you. Thank you so much for dying in our place. And we pray this in your perfect name. Amen.